Hello and welcome to Gatekeepers, a podcast featuring top members of the entertainment industry talking about their lives and experience in the art of filmmaking. I am your host, Isaac Simpson. This episode is a long interview with writer-director Paul Haggis. Haggis is an Oscar winner best known for writing and directing 2004's Crash. He is incredibly prolific, having written for TV for over 20 years, including Walker, Texas Ranger, before turning to film and having almost instant success. He's the only writer in history to have two movies that he wrote win Best Picture back-to-back, which was Million Dollar Baby in 2005 and Crash in 2006. His latest project, a collaboration with David Simon, creator of The Wire, is called Show Me a Hero and stars Oscar Isaac. It's about race relations and desegregation in Yonkers, New York, and will be released August 16th on HBO. Haggis is a perennial writer's writer. He's a very nice guy. He struggles with his moods, as basically every good writer throughout time has done. He talked about being depressed in New York, and he talked about um, being part of this Hollywood system that can be frustrating and all these other things, and how he really mines his characters with his own personal life, which is pretty fascinating. If you ever wanted to know how to write a character, listen to this interview because it really gives you a good idea of how a master gets into the mind of one of his uh, many characters. Gatekeepers is produced for its members by Collaborator.com, the world's first project collaboration network where filmmakers can come together to find tools to fund, produce, market, and screen their projects. Without further ado, let's get to one of the best writers in the game, Paul Haggis. Advice to people when I was breaking in and they were saying how, I'd broken in and they were saying how do you break in and I was saying give your services away, give your services and, uh, and it'll come back and it does immediately, that's how I got all my jobs in the beginning. Wow. Yeah. Is that so, yeah, I mean, how did that happen? I, um, my first... I'd written a couple of things, but um, I, um, I was at a, a screenwriting class. It was Danny Simons. And I met this writer, and uh, I liked him. He was a sitcom writer. I was trying to be a sitcom writer. And he, uh, he said, I have a real problem. I've got an assignment, great, uh, for a, a television show. Uh, but I have a writing partner, and we sold the, you know, we sold the, the idea. We pitched the idea and sold it. But it's due on Monday, and we haven't started writing, and it's Wednesday. And they've had the assignment for like four weeks. And I said, I can't get my partner to write. I said, wow, that's an unusual, unusual problem. I said, I'll write it with you. He said, no, man, you don't understand. I, I can't pay him. I go, yeah, I know. I'll just write it with you. And, and uh, so uh, we did it. Went, went over there on the Thursday. We wrote it in three days. It was done. And then uh, he said, you know, I, I can't give you credit either. I said, it's OK. Give him credit. I don't care. So I just wanted to do it. So he, uh, he felt very guilty. And uh, uh, so he said, listen, um, i got to give you something. And I was sitting in this big chair, a big Salvation Army chair the entire time, the threadbare chair. I said, I'll take the chair. I need a chair. So he said, great. So he gave me that big chair. That chair is still in my, my house. Uh, he said, that's the chair that started my career. Because he went in and said, listen, uh, to the producers, I don't know if you like the script or not, but I did it with this guy named Paul Haggis. And, if you, and so they liked it, and they hired us to do uh, uh, on staff there, uh, the two of us. So yeah, and, but I didn't think that would happen. I just wanted the experience of writing something. That's and amazing. it was great. Yeah. And you got a chair. I get a chair. I think chairs were like in ancient Greece or something. They mm. were some sort of like uh, 
honor that was given to people when you was were, it? yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a symbolic. Okay. It's and either like get a chair or a beheading. Yeah, you know, they liked you or not. Yeah, I, I get it. Okay. I think chairs were very rare. Yeah, immolation. Let's burn him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's cool. So why did you want to be a sitcom writer? Were you funny? I'm ridiculously funny. <laughs> yes, thank you for noticing. Um, the, uh, yeah, I liked comedy. I, I wanted to get into anything. I was writing screenplays. I was writing dramas. I was writing sitcom specs. I was writing anything I could uh, to try to break in. And this was just happened to be a comedy writing class I got to. And uh, I remember I went into, <laughs> I, 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 you had to apply. And uh, there was an application process. You fill out the form, and you have to go and meet Danny, who was Neil Simon's brother, and supposedly taught Neil how to write. And uh, the, uh, you give him a script to read. He's read it and goes, uh, show me the funny. And I says, what? Well, what do you mean? Show me where it's funny. <laughs> I have to go through it. Well, I think it's funny. It's not funny. That's not funny. <laughs> and so he, he found me to be not funny. And uh, so needed his class, obviously. So he accepted me somehow. And uh, yeah, and I went. And it was, it was, I can't remember a damn thing. But it was, but it was, it was good. I enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah. Well, because I know a lot of people want to do sitcoms because it's a really stable it's sort of a stable thing. Was that oh, yeah? the way it was? No, then, no, it was no freelance assignments were never oh, stable. Mm, so, yeah. I mean, it was much more of a freelancer's world back then. Um, and uh, no, I just what any. I'm trying to think of the honest answer is I just wanted to get in anything at all. I mean, I'd written like two spec scripts, I think, and uh, feature scripts, and I'd written like a couple of dramas, a caper, you know, and and two sitcoms. I was always desperate to get anything. Because I was working as a furniture mover. So chairs. You know, yeah, chairs. <laughs> chairs, pianos, <laughs> fucking pianos. Up three, four flights of stairs over in Fairfax. That was that was not easy. Whoa. Yeah. And was that did you sort of uh, was it the kind of thing where you was it an overnight thing where the sitcom started working out and you were like a furniture mover oh, one day yeah. and a writer the next, or were you kind of was it an ease out of the of the uh, it was a job. long, slow, ugly process. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd write for, uh, well, I'd, besides, when I moved down here, I, I was married at 22 and had a baby at 23. So we were living in Glendale with like six other people in one apartment, five other people. No, it was like six altogether. And, uh, yeah. Uh, and so I'd be working, uh, eight hours a day moving furniture and then come home to write at night every two or three hours. And that's, see, that's, I think, what people don't understand. Um, everyone, uh, you know, I meet actors, writers, want to be directors, and they, they say they're working hard, and they're, you know, I say, well, how hard are you working? And they, they tell me, I say, oh, okay, so you went to class this week, that's good. <laughs> oh, so, uh, did you write anything today? Oh, no, I'm going to write in the weekend. I said, bullshit, you're, you're not going to be a writer. You, you, you write every day. You work every day. I, I would move furniture for eight hours a day, come home to Glendale, and I'd write for two to three hours a night, every night. And I was miserable and sweaty, and, that, and that's what you do. You have to be that fierce if you want to succeed. Now, that fucks things up with your family quite a bit. <laughs> because you know, I tried to be a good father and, uh, over the years, but it's just you, 
you have to want it that much to work that hard, that much harder than everybody else. And, and, you, and you look around and go, why? Everyone's you know, the, the chateau having a drink. Whatever. I'm at the chateau having a drink now. <laughs> but not, not for the first 20 years of my career. I never went anywhere near it. I was working. You yeah. work nights, you work weekends. Even when you, and especially when you start to break in, you work. You work on your craft or you're not going to make it. Think you just also, maybe you'll make it, but how good do you want to be? It's all about craft and practice. I mean, I struggle with my craft right now, every day. Now I'm trying to find something to write. I'm struggling with it. And uh, people think, oh, that's, that's, he's being you know, humble. Or, no, no, no. I'm struggling to find a good story and to tell it well. Um, so, yeah. So if I'm doing that now after all these years. You, you better, better learn your craft early on. Are you struggling in the finding or the telling? Both. Yeah. Both. Yeah. Um, I spent last winter, it was miserable in New York because it's, you know, New York, and it's winter. And I love New York, but God damn it. Um, and I chose to move there too from Los Angeles. I was such an idiot. <laughs> but uh, so last winter I was so depressed. Uh, it was a, just broken up with a woman and I was really depressed. And, and everyone was inviting me away, which they do. You know, when you have a modicum of fame or infamy, they always want you to go someplace, they'll pay you to go to the Caribbean, they'll take you over here, they'll come to here. Everyone's like, oh, come with me on my boat. I'm going, no, 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 no. If, you know, I have this default that if um, someone asks me to, something, to do something cool, my automatic answer is no. Because I feel if I'm not working, if I'm not writing, I'm not worth anything. And so I say, no, no. So I stayed in this goddamn freezing, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I couldn't find a story, then I found one. Damn. So I wrote for seven weeks on the story. Now, seven weeks of writing for me is, you know, between six and nine hours a day, sitting down, and it's six to six and a half days a week. And the other, you know, uh, half day I spend with my son playing cards or something like that. And uh, so I was doing that and was feeling pretty good. You know, it was winter, horrible weather, freezing my ass up, but I was writing it, writing it, writing. And then I got seven weeks into it, finished it, wrote the end, read it, said, this is shit, threw it out, that was the end of it. So on, on top of being really depressed about the weather, really depressed about my relationship, I was then really depressed about the fact I couldn't write anymore. And that went in a drawer. And, uh, you know, no, it, it, finding a story and then finding a way to tell it well, it's tough, man. Really hard. Yeah. Yeah, I... Uh... It's not like real work. I don't want to overstate <laughs> it. Exactly. It's not like actual work. I remember actual work. Do you think... But it is real. I mean, it's mental work, which is in a in ways yeah. harder, you yeah. know? I, you know, I'm about to self-publish a book, which mm -hmm. goes to show how good the book is that mm -hmm. I'm self-publishing it. But, but, yeah, that's, uh... that's, how you, that's how you have to do it now. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe, you know, who knows? It's, I think it's crap, too. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I, you know, I was reading it the other day. I was about to read it at this reading with like a bunch of people oh, cool. in front of me. And I started reading it. And I was like, this is the worst piece of crap yeah. I have ever seen in my life. Yeah, I right. can't read it. So I just didn't read it. Yeah. How accurate, I mean, from yeah. a, you know, somebody who's written so much, is that voice, is that crazy? God, that I just watched, I had to watch Crash again <laughs> um, because I was teaching in Rome. And so I took... 
I got my editor to cut out all the scenes of Matt Dillon's plot, so I could just talk about how to <laughs> how to make. No, I mean cut out, and use talk about them. So I could talk oh, about okay, how okay, okay. to construct a plot. I said yeah. that's a good arc; it works. Yeah, yeah. And so I had to watch those and then talk about how I you know, came up with the idea, how I wrote it, and then you know, with, uh, came up with the story. I wrote it with Bobby, and then and then how I uh, directed it, and uh, it was painful, painful. I mean, Matt's great in that. Uh, and you know, it's, it's, Tandy's wonderful. Uh, it's hard to watch your own stuff. It's weird. Yeah. Then there's other stuff I can watch forever. I don't know why. Usually, I think with me, the more successful it is, the, 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 the harder it is for me to watch. The more praise it received, the harder it is to watch. Uh, there's things like In the Valley of Ally, which received no praise at all, which I think is a great film. And I can watch that. Or my last film, which you know, eighty percent of the critics called the worst piece of shit of all time. Twenty percent said this is reinventing cinema, and eighty percent said worst piece of shit of all time. <laughs> that I can watch. Yeah. And so that, yeah, yeah, it has yeah. something to do with the critical, yeah, I the critical yeah. response. Yeah, exactly. Sickly so. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it's it's funny. Um, so when you're doing this crazy amount of actual writing, which it seems like you've really managed to have the discipline to do for a long time. Um, do you love it? Do you love the act of it? Or it, are you kind of lost in it? Or Yeah, I love it. Um, it's painful. I mean, again, again not real pain. <laughs> I know real pain. <laughs> but it is, um, I mean, <clears throat> a lot of the time spent there uh, is time that you spend staring at a screen with nothing coming. Or making endless notes. Um, he could be this, 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 this. <laughs> they go, well, what if he's this plus this? Uh, what if he's that, pretending to be that? Um, so a lot of it's not what you'd call writing. Anyone would look over your shoulder and say, he's writing. It's, it's staring. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, that's not the fun part. But when the characters start to click, and they start to talk to you, and they start to work. It's a lot of fun. I, I love that. That's that's great. And then the next step is you know when they you cast somebody and they, they bring it alive. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So you like writing the? You said in another interview that <clears throat> the way you write characters is you put yourself in that exact position that someone is in, or you know whatever all the their environment and their world is, and then you don't judge. Well, I don't actually put myself in their exact position in their character <laughs> world. I mean, I, I mean, I perhaps imagine them in that. Yeah. Otherwise, I'd be in all these strange positions of, yeah. Um, yeah, on top of a raft. Uh, no. All research. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, you have to know the given circumstances of, of a person's life, and you have to know them well. And if you don't know them well, you better do a lot of research. And then you better put yourself in their, their, their shoes and... and uh, and wonder how you would react, given that history, given that uh, uh, who you are, what defines you, at that point. Yeah, that's that's how you write. Yeah, and uh, so was that always your technique all through the the twenty years of TV? No, and no, I made a very good living as a very bad writer for yeah. many years, many yeah. many years. Yeah, in my sitcom years, and and right up until. And through uh, doing uh, this TV show called Thirty Something, which we did in the '80s, 
<coughs> which was sort of groundbreaking television at the time. And uh, I, was, uh, I learned how to write on that show, but I can't say I was a good writer on that show. Um, and uh, slowly, 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 I learned to do that. So what was that, what was that click? Well, I'd been, always been a clever writer. And uh, um, there's a, a line in third person where Olivia Wilde's character, who's a young writer, uh, who's having an affair with uh, Liam Neeson's character, who's an established writer, and she's asked him to read her short story. And he's like, fuck. <laughs> and so he does, begrudgingly. And uh, he says, uh, Sister Down goes, well, it's very good. It's clever. And she goes, whew, clever. It's not a nice thing to say. It's an insult. Uh, because, you know, at its heart, and that's usually where I throw my stuff out. That's when I threw that story out after Christmas. It was clever. It was this twist and that turn, and I came together, and at the end, you just didn't give a shit. You cared a little bit. It didn't grab you. So clever is an anathema to me. It's, uh, and so I was a very clever writer for a long time. And then I had to learn to, to ask questions that really, truly troubled me and explore those. And so I'm no longer clever. My dialogue is flat and boring. <laughs> but, it, uh, but it gets to something, hopefully. And what I don't, I, I know it. I know that I should be digging deeper and asking myself oh, this is something that's not as easy for me to answer. Yeah. yeah. Well, what's interesting is, you know, you had 20 years of writing on sitcoms, and then your first film was, it was uh, the first two, really, were, were issues driven. Well, not the first two, I'm sorry. This, the, yeah. There was the 93 movie. Which never actually got made. I mean, it never got finished, so I don't claim it to be a, a film. Oh. I, I, it was... Yeah, a film that we tried to do, and, and the producers ran out of money, and they they, uh, they cut the film without me before I even got back to town, and so I've never even seen it. So that oh really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so that's just a thing. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so Crash and Million Dollar Baby, both are issues-driven movies, um, which seem to maybe be exploring the kinds of questions that. Yeah. I think that artists have a responsibility uh, to comment on or to question society in general. It uh, doesn't mean everything should, uh, uh, should be preachy or, 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 uh, or dull. Uh, but I think often we get caught up in just trying to tell a, uh, an entertaining story. And, and I think if we, uh, if we truly Try, try and explore the issues that are that are troubling us, whether they're societal or whether they're personal. Um, we have a chance of, of, I don't know, doing something that uh, uh, that has a, a modicum of meaning, and so that's that's what I always look for is something. That, it doesn't have to be a big issue. Uh, my last film was just about how do you love somebody, and but there are very personal questions and how do, how do I allow someone to love me and how do I love an impossible person, uh, and that was something I just couldn't figure out. Uh, or but in Crash or in Million Dollar Baby, there were, there were issues that uh, uh, society was, was wrestling with, but I was also wrestling with. Very personal questions uh, about, uh, about race and class in, in, our, in our society and how they affected me and, and how they affected me in a negative way, usually, the, the thoughts I had about others. 
And I figured if I'm this big liberal and I'm thinking these things secretly, then you know, maybe other people are still thinking them, and maybe they, you know, we should explore that. Yeah, I, I liked what you said about Crash, which was, you know, you were trying to kind of um, throw off the liberals who all think something. Yeah, no, uh, pride is uh, one of the seven deadly sins for, for a reason. Uh, and especially we liberals, we all think that we're good people. And so because we need to think that, we, you know, we ignore signs that we're not, that we, uh, uh, we, uh, we like to think that we fixed problems because we were good people, we would fix these problems. And so we do something to make ourselves feel good and then we just forget about it. And so some people, perhaps some people on the other side of the issue are, are just more honest. So in Crash, it was, the, it was those who, who were most prideful, who thought they were good people, that paid the biggest price. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Um, and that was something when you were, was that something that you sort of, was bothering you for a mm -hmm. long time? Or? It was, I mean, it started with just, you know, these two kids who, you know, jacked my car. And I was curious about who they were. And then I was curious about them for like nine years. And then I woke up thinking about them at two o'clock in the morning and went and started writing about the two of them, made them my protagonists to start. And, and then I was also you know, troubled by the nature of living in Los Angeles and how You know, I, I remember when they built Third Street Promenade in, in Santa Monica. Now, up until this point, this was just this was a desolate part of town, and no one would go to Third Street. Shops were all closed, etc. And the city decided to make it into a walk street and closed it off. Built a couple of cinemas and a couple of cafes, and suddenly people just started coming from everywhere. They were just everywhere. The streets were full. And you'd see people from all parts of town. And if you'd ask them what they were doing there, they'd say, I've come to see a movie, or I've come to have something to eat. But there were restaurants much closer to them, good ones. And there were certainly movie theaters much closer to wherever they lived. So I said, that's not it. So what is it? And you know, being a writer, you get to come up with these bullshit theories about life, and you just get to you know, force them on people. And so I thought, well, maybe Maybe it's about the touch of strangers. Maybe as human beings we need that and, and don't understand we need that. Uh, and we need to brush up against people who are different than us in order to feel alive. And so that was the, the conceit there. And then in Los Angeles that you literally had to crash into someone in order to, to feel something. You need that level of impact. So there was the, that thought. There was a lot of other thoughts in there about how we're connected or not connected, and how you can affect people. I remember somebody cutting me off in a car, and uh, I flipped him off, and he flipped me off, and I went right, and he went left. And I stopped later. And went. I wonder who that guy is. I wonder what happened after that. I mean, I've judged him in that moment of being this asshole. What if he, you know, uh, stops two blocks later and, and saves someone's life? And I just don't know. Uh, so the, the, the way we judge people quickly was of interest to me in, in, in passing. And uh, certainly how we judge people 
uh, often is by the way they look. And we, uh, uh, at the same time, we think we just invaded Iraq for the first time. And all my big liberal friends were trying to convince me that was a really good idea because Saddam Hussein was a terrible villain. And you know, he was gassing his own people. I said, yeah, no, I, I know he is. I mean, we did give him that gas, you know that, right? But yeah, no, he was an awful villain. Um, but why him? Why this particular guy? Why not any of the other dictators in the world we support? We could invade them. And uh, they didn't really have an answer. So, other than he was a terrible man. So I thought, you know, why we're invading him is because he looks like a villain. He has a big, bushy mustache. He has, you know, he has dark skin that's pockmarked. He looks like a villain. It's easy to sell. And it was. It was easy to sell this to us. Um, so we invaded. And we could sell that. So it's how we judge people based on their looks and based on their ethnicity and based on their, their class. Because, you know, it, it's not really a matter of race anymore in America. Because you can be very happy with the, the, the wealthy black neighbors who are moving across the street. And they, but you know, have, a, have a white guy move in there with, a, with an old van and, and his and you know, kids who are all you know, 300 pounds. And, you know, you're not going to be happy. It's, uh, I had one of those guys. I was, like, I was always bitching. You know, what the hell is he parking that van in the street for? And that's a nice neighborhood. And so, you know, class factors into it very quickly. I mean, race is still there. Uh, so, uh, and then uh, I remember, no, okay, here's an interesting thing. Uh, you do interviews, and, you know, when you release a movie, you do a lot of interviews. And they tend to ask you the same questions. And you come up with the answer, and you give them the answer. Well, there are cases, many of them, I think, where uh, I've told stories, very personal stories about Crash or about other people's, about other stories I've, I've told. And, for example, there's, a, there's one particular one, or how I came up with the, 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 the story about the television director, the black television director. And I can see, uh, right now, I, I can picture exactly where I saw that. I was on the studio lot, the Sony lot. I was uh, walking from my office to the production office. I was shooting a television show that was exec producing. And I can see the, the black director we'd hired for that week. And I can see the two white producers were standing with him. And I remember walking closer and closer. And as I, as I get you know, close enough to hear them, I realize that uh, one of the white producers is, is telling a joke. As I get really close, I realize it's a racist joke. And he's telling this racist joke to the black director. And then before I, I get, step right up and, and say, you know, you're an asshole for doing this, before I can do that, uh, I see uh, the black director laugh, slap the guy in the shoulder, turn and walk back to the stage to, to keep shooting. And I asked myself how much of that person's soul he just ate to keep his job that week. Now that's a pretty specific story. And I can tell you the lighting, everything. I just don't know if that happened or not. Or if I just, after telling that story, think it happened. That's the nature of memory. We remember the last time that we remembered it rather than remembering the actual instant. So 
yeah, you, so there's, there's many times when, when you're very influenced by something, but it just didn't occur. <laughs> um, but there's something else that occurred that, that made you think that. And uh, so there are many, many influences there. I just don't know if they're all real. Did a lot of reading, certainly, about, about race and, and, and people's... Um, Deborah Dickerson's book was really good, uh, just about what it was like, the, the shame of growing up uh, uh, as a black woman wanting to be white and wanting to and just hating the fact that her uh, those around her got any sympathy uh, got any help uh, the, the pride of that and I said, oh, pride that's a good one I love pride um, and she was in a military family one group to be in the military so yeah there were, there were many many influences but uh, I don't know if they're all real yeah that's really interesting because and also what you said earlier about um, you know as a writer you get to sort of uh, dictate um, morality in a way, and to explore morality. Yeah, yeah. But when you're, if you're, these stories are sort of these allegories or parables that you're yeah. using, and yes. sometimes they're not real. And I completely yeah. know what you're yeah. saying. Yeah. Uh, you know, is that? Um, I love the fact that we could point in, the, in that case that you. I would show you who the villain was and who the hero was, and then just fuck with you. And go, really, that's what you think, huh? You think that, that's a good cop, and you think that's a bad cop. Well, maybe we just don't know who we are until we're tested. Maybe we have all these lovely things we think about ourselves until something happens that truly makes us question that. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, Matt Dillon's character, heinous, heinous character, basically rapes a woman, and then turns out to he is the guy who has what it takes to be a hero and save that woman when the time comes. I knew that was going to happen. And the one who felt very good about himself and didn't want anything to do with this racist is the one who, when something happens and he's in a situation where he feels threatened, pulls a gun and shoots a kid. You don't know who you are until you're, you're threatened, until, you, until you're in that situation where you have to do something to try and save your life. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I see also many of the most liberal people I know, mm. the most you know, racist shaming people don't seem to hang out with any minorities at all because almost it's too hard for them yeah. to do it because yeah. they're, they're thinking about it. Oh yeah, it. I'd ask friends of mine to go down to South Central so that we'd have something to eat and hear something, some music or something. I could never get them to go. Yeah. And there's all excuses. It's like this new movie I just did. There's many excuses for it. And they're all good excuses. Uh, but it just doesn't happen. Yeah, but, and, and kind of what you're saying is at the same time we also sort of crave it. Yeah. We also crave it, but we're, we're kind of scared of it. And, yeah, we and isolate ourselves, it. especially, and you see that in Los Angeles uh, more than any place, because we can choose to isolate ourselves here. We can drive to specifically go someplace. Uh, you make an appointment, you, 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 you guys are going to get together at such a time at such a place, and those are places that are largely being your socioeconomic level. Yeah. Does New York feel better than L.A. in that sense? Because yeah. you're thrust in with... Yeah, because you have no choice. You walk down the street and there's all sorts of people there. Um, now, we still, we can feel good about ourselves, but, you know, Soho is still Soho, and, you know, Lower East Side's still Lower East Side, and in Brooklyn, or we're not heading up to, uh, you know, to, to the Bronx or something. Yeah. So... Yeah. Gentrification. I mean, this is a this Huge. is a big, huge issue. I, yes. I write about gentrification a yeah. lot for yeah. 
for LA Weekly. Yeah. And uh, so I've, you know, immersed myself in some of these neighborhoods. And, you know, I inevitably get it wrong. And somebody's pissed off about mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. because I didn't get this prominent person or something. Mm -hmm. So this, the, the new thing you're making with, with David Simon, which is like an all-star collaboration of yeah. sort of municipal race mm -hmm. things. What, what's, uh, can you tell what, what's happening with that? That's based on a true story. Um, events that occurred in Yonkers, New York from 1987 through 1993 when Yonkers was finally forced to desegregate. I love the idea because when you say desegregation, you think you know, Birmingham in the 60s in the South, or maybe you think Boston and school busing, you know. but you don't think New York 1990. And, uh, and you also don't realize this story is going on right now. I mean, today, this, these, these same issues are occurring, you know, very close to you know, like Terrytown. And, and uh, this is a story where, you know, they, they were forced to put Yonkers had intentionally you know, kept their neighborhood segregated, segregated, defying federal order for 40 years. And many towns have done this, and they stick all the low-income housing over one side of the, the freeway. And, the other side stays white and the, the zoning, etc. It's very easy to do that. Uh, even wealthy black families were sort of directed over this way to the sort of nicer black neighborhoods by the real estate agents. And the federal judge finally said, enough, you have to put 200 units of low-income housing on the white side of town. And the city went nuts. It just blew up. This is 200 units in a city over 200,000 people. Just 200. They went crazy. And... Um, so I thought that was an interesting area to explore. David had written a terrific script with uh, another writer, Bill Zorzi. And uh, uh, again, it was, I, I like the idea that I could identify with all those characters, even the villains, the ones who were saying, you know, keep those black people out of here. I could identify because you could drive over and you could look at Schlobum or the other projects and they were horrible. They said, this is, you, do you really want this on your street with all this crime and these drugs? Do you really want that on your street? I don't. I don't. Uh, and the fact that the, uh, the federal government had mismanaged public housing for so long, just so they were basically warehousing people in these, these towers, stacking them on top of each other, and, and you know, putting, spending a lot of money to, to do something that would absolutely fail these people and fail the neighborhood and failed the greater township. So uh, there was one fella here, his name was Oscar Newman, who was a minor character in our, in our series, who was a bureaucrat, and he just fought everybody, all the sides to do something he had common sense, to, to do scattered site housing, to do, to do it in a way that, that the, the sort of defensible space, they call it, so that you, you had your own area, you did your own front door, there was no public areas to get to that, and there was a, your own little backyard, and he you said, know, so people will defend their space you know, if, if, if you give it to them. And, uh, and it did, it worked. There's all those townhouses were finally built, and, and nothing happened, but, but you know, there were no ill consequences. But to get to that, it was quite a ride. So uh, that's the story we're telling over six hours. Wow. Yeah. And you said the script was already written? Yeah. You know, uh, it was written. I just directed it. I didn't write it. It's the first time I've directed something I didn't write. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's interesting. So when you're directing one of these sort of, um, mm -hmm. you know, a more, I guess, issues-driven piece, is that, uh, is writing it 
and then directing it is, do you need to have more of a point of view in one or the other? No, I, I really wanted to learn. Uh, I, I liked the idea of doing this, well, first of all, because of David Simon, who's you know, yeah. a great storyteller. And, but also because uh, you know, there's, there's certain techniques, there are things that we do as writers uh, and writer directors that circumvent what a director has to do. We, because we, we think about, we picture the scene where we're writing it, we know why it works and we know kind of well, why we need to shoot it from, from what point of view. When you don't write it, you come in cold and you have to re-explore that material and try to figure out just how to make it work as a, as a director working with the actors. And, I, and I, I'd never done that and really wanted to. And it was a great experience. Was it frustrating at all? No, no, not at all. No, it was, uh, uh, they were very good to me. They allowed me to give notes on the script. And, and then where a scene wasn't really coming to life, you allowed me to just explore it with the actors and yeah. improvise a little bit around the lines just to, to sort of make it feel of life. That was a wonderful experience. And is there, I mean, I know what David Simon is great at is uh, relative morality. Yeah. Is there bad guys and good guys? I mean, is it well, there sort always of... are, but the, uh, in this case, as I said, some of the folks, you know, there, there are people who are racist and are covering it up by saying that it's just about, it's an economic issue, it's, not a, it's a green issue, it's not an issue of black and white. <coughs> and there are politicians who are using fear to govern, and that's kind of how we govern today. No one uses common sense anymore. It's all about you know, making you afraid of something on both sides, um, especially on the right, but on the left as well. And uh, so, that, yeah, that's all over it. And the impossibility of governance in, in America. Of yeah. getting it done. Yeah. Wow. What do you see in the future? I mean, you know, it, both of these are so much about bringing these things, people together and how hard that is. Do you see, ultimately, in the United States or anywhere, it being an eventual threading of anything? Or? Well, the lovely thing about being a writer is you don't have to come up with any answers at all. You only have to come up with questions, and that's uh, so. I have no idea. Uh, I, I, I just do know where, know where we are, and I, I, I figure if I ask the questions and stir the pot, other people, smart people, will come up with solutions. Yeah. Okay. So this is you know all the really heavy, um, inspiring things. You also after the mm -hmm. the big three, I guess, which were Crash, My Another Baby, and In the Valley of Ela. Um, which were very issues-driven. You returned and you did some Bond movies. You did yep. a video game, Casino which I really Royale. want to talk yeah. about. Which was the, you know, everybody kind of agrees the best Bond movie. In, oh, thank you. In, I love that. Ages. And I love, I love that movie. And I, I mean, I love your other movies as well. Um, is that kind of a refreshing break, or do you yeah. sort of, re, re, you know? No, I, I loved it. But I, I approached it just like I approached my other screenplays. You approached it by asking real questions of those, those characters who have been archetypes and perhaps become stereotypes. Uh, you, you dig in and you ask, what's it really like to be an assassin? You know, do you really shoot a laser from the moon and say a smart line? Or do you, you know, kill somebody with a knife up close and no matter how much you're trying to protect yourself and uh, from that influencing you at all doesn't get through all your emotional armor and, and, and have an effect on you. Uh, and, and what's it like to, why, I think, well, why is Bond that way with women? You know, what is that? And 
oh, maybe he had his heart really, really broken. <laughs> and they go, okay, how? Over betrayal. And they have to really sculpt that betrayal within the story that they already have. Yeah. Um, what about the uh, Call of Duty? That was fun. That was a lot of fun. I had no idea why they wanted me to do this. Uh, they brought me in quite late in the process. They'd already had quite a few of the set pieces done. And they asked me to try and string together the story uh, and help with the dialogue in order to, to create a character arc for these guys. And that was so much fun because you can't, you're writing for a character you can never see. You're, you are the character, so the character can't speak. Um, people can speak to the character. But that was, uh, was fascinating. Uh, I'm about to go out and shoot a, shoot a short project that's uh, <clears throat> all perspective camera, all point of view, and I learned a lot from that about what you can do and what you can't, and, and how you can tell an emotional story, or a story that has an emotional arc, uh, without seeing or speaking, you know, and having a, the, the person have a face. That was really interesting. That's, wow. Yeah. What, what was the motivation? I mean, why? They just that... called me and they asked me if I'd do it, and I said, sure, it sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Yeah. Pushing, is it important to keep pushing into. I think trying different things, things that scare you. I, I like to do things that scare me. I'm, I'm thinking about doing this big movie now. It terrifies me, or really terrifies me, because uh, it would redefine me, uh, and, and I don't know if it would redefine me in a good way or not. Um, so I'm scared enough that I think I'd need to do it. Yeah. yeah. Important to keep taking risks. Yeah, and they're not always the obvious risks, you think. You know, just sometimes it's like, well, can I do something this commercial? Wow, I don't know. I've always avoided that my entire life. I've never, I've run away from all the big movies they've offered me to direct. And uh, I went, oh, maybe this one is scary enough that I should do it. Will you try, if you do it, will you try to inject a little bit of the hammer in there? Because it seems like it's pretty, uh, you know, the, the, the main super commercial stuff we got now seems pretty. Well, you always try to explore something you are. Yeah. And some questions you have. And so, yeah, I'll try that. This is something that I'd be directing, and uh, I'd have to hopefully do a rewrite on the, on the script. But it's really a matter of the direction and how you explore that and pull that out of a character without changing their dialogue at all. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, cool. Uh, I won't ask you what it is, but I, I can't I, tell I, you. <laughs> but I'm really interested. Um, so uh, one thing I, I noticed in uh, third person that I guess is just kind of in my mind right now, the Neeson character seemed, I found it, and maybe this is completely off, but I found it to be a little autobiographical. No, really? <laughs> But a writer who's, yeah, yeah. whose work has like, succeeded in the first one, the best thing he did, and, and exactly now he's miserable. And yeah, trying to, you know, oh no, really? And he's got this. Well, well he's true. I did have this incredible affair with Livia Wilde. That, that's the truth. That, that's of really what it is. Um, yeah, no, uh, that, that, I mean, it's easy to say that one is actually all of them are autobiographical. Of course. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, I think everything in that movie is true, it just none of it happened. Yeah. Uh, so it's much like the story I was telling before about Crash. I'd, I'd say, take something, there's a lot of dialogue in that movie that was either said to me or I said to somebody else. It just wasn't quite in that situation. Um, it could have been the story with the gypsy or in the story with, uh, you know, uh, you know the, 
the man who's trying to protect his son from an uh, ex-wife who may have you know, hurt him. I mean, how we judge people, how we try and um, love people, how we try to protect ourselves. Yeah, that's all me. Yeah. Very, very autobiographical, that film. It just it didn't happen. Well, he says something uh, in the movie, and you know, I think I've heard you say maybe a few things along those lines, which is that uh, he's a writer. It's about a story about a writer who can't feel anything yeah. besides through his characters. Yeah, that boy, does that haunt me. The yeah. idea that that's who I am, that I only explore issues in my life through my screenplays and can only truly feel through the characters. That's what happens is I ask these questions, they're horrible questions, and I go, is that me? Wow, and I, and I like, I guess, to always believe the worst about myself because it's good for drama. And, um, and maybe it's in my life too, but uh, if I think I'm a pretty good guy, uh, who, who wants to see a movie about a pretty good guy? You know, <laughs> you got to be a pretty good guy who is actually hiding this you know, <laughs> or hiding that about himself. And so that's what I look for. I always look for what what my flaw is there, and I'll try and put that into a character. And because I, then I'll be interested in, because I'll be haunted. I'm haunted by the fact that that's me. Yeah. Yeah. But this, it, what's con, uh, confounding to me is, and I think a lot of people in my position is, you know, you've won an Oscar. And you know, you you had this period in New York. You were saying you were depressed, and you're saying, you know, I think maybe through him that it's numbing, maybe. And you've said that fame and all these things are ultimately empty, which you hear, you know, that that happens a lot of times. Uh, how does that happen? I mean, how does that enter? Because at first, that success must be so gratifying. Oh, it's always gratifying. I mean, this is you know, people ask, how does it feel to win a couple of Oscars, and you go what do you think it feels like? <laughs> it's really fucking cool. Uh, it's, uh, it's great. But, I mean, I have all these awards and I have them stacked on my shelf in my little writing room there. And uh, honest to God, I, I, I pick them up every so long and I look at the date and go, oh, look, I used to be good. You know, I, I put it back down. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow, in 1987, I read a de definitely good television script. Um, the... You know, it's nice. It's really good, and um, I mean, it's advice that I give to young writers and actors and people who you know, are trying to break in. They ask, "What, what, what can you do?" Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I said, "Well, as soon as you possibly can, win a couple of Oscars. It really helps with the career. It's true. It really does help." You gotta. Okay. Should we take a quick break? Okay. Good. Okay. It helps. It, uh, yeah, it definitely helps, yeah. But the award itself, is it ultimately kind of, you know, Natalie Portman said something really that caught my ear recently about it being a false idol. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I get troubled by people that just put too much importance on things. People say it was the best picture of the year. I hate best lists, I hate them. You look at the year the crash one, and I love that it won. I love that statuette. I love the, the other ones I got there. But, I mean, Good Night and Good Luck, brilliant film. Capote, great. Munich, you know, and, and, uh, and Brokeback Broke Mountain. Back, yeah. All great films. T t tell me which is the best film there. Yeah, and how can one really be the no, best? No, one? it can't be. It, it can know? be one that affected you. Um, and that's what I do. And I think Crash affected people. I think that's it's genuine. I do think people, these people would come up to me afterwards and say, that movie just changed my life. And 
it changed a lot. Yeah, and so that, it did. And so if you judge by that standard, yeah, it's great. Uh, it may have had great impact, but you can't tell me that Brokeback Mountain didn't change. It also did, yeah, it also did. Um, the, uh, so, but people get so hung up on what was the best and what should have won. I, I just read just an, an interview last week with uh, the writers from uh, you know, Diana Sum and that and it's just still burned that, she, that they didn't win. They're going, oh, please, come on. You, you, that, you can uh, in any way think your film wasn't great because of that? Some Come on, you, and, and you got like three or four Oscars, so what, what was the best? It's just, it's kind of childish. Yeah. Uh, it really is. The, 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 there's the, I, I love the idea that there's, that there's a list of films every year that, you know, say these were terrific films. I love that. And, but even that list, even now with the 10 Oscars or whatever, or nominations, you know, there's always five that should have been on there. And there are probably five that, mm, I don't know if they deserve to be on there or not, but at least from my point of view. So um, you have to be really happy with the work. And uh, I, you have to be really proud of it, and whether it gets attention or doesn't get attention. I'm, I'm really happy with a couple of my films that got no attention at all. I, I'm really happy with those. Those are the films that I'll remember. And uh, so with the best list is, is, is just silly. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that that's just... See, it could be one of two things. It could be just that, they, like, some people who win, I think, tend to think, if, oh, people who say that winning doesn't matter are just jealous, right? I didn't say they were jealous. I, no, I, no, I, not, I, you're not saying that. I'm saying, <laughs> no, no, I'm, you're not saying that at all. I'm saying people who love the Oscars and think that it's the best thing ever, they think, oh. Well, they just put too, too much importance on that. Yeah. I mean, it's lovely. It is lovely. I like it. I'm a really, I love having the statuettes. People come in and they look at it, pick them up, they realize how heavy they are. It's, it's, it's lovely. Um, so, uh, and it's nice that your, your people recognize that yes, your film yes, you know, touched people. That's great. But there are so many great films that didn't win or weren't even nominated. So many great films. And uh, so we have to be really happy with the work we do and not worry that uh, this one was recognized as being, you know, having more of an impact than, than any other film. Yeah. I keep waiting for somebody to get up there mm -hmm. and giving the speech and to say mm -hmm. that, or mm -hmm. to say something really, yeah. you know. Yeah, we, we don't want to be ungrateful. Yeah, see, that's the, that's, that's the thing, right? Because it is, it it's a wonderful thing. I'm not trying to in any way say, I, I, I'd, love, I'd love to win 10 more, honest yeah. to God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I like, oh yeah, 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 I, yeah, I, yeah. I love them, they're great. And that moment is terrific, and it does help you do more work in the future. Absolutely. That, that really is. And so if you're doing something a little different, like we did with Crash, or they did it with Brokeback, or uh, any of the films that were nominated that year, that, that nomination really helps you get your next movie made, and that's great. Yeah, it frees you. Yeah. Um, so did you ever think, uh, growing up, that you would win an Oscar? No. I didn't think two seconds before uh, that we'd win Best Picture. I, I, I was flabbergasted. I was caught completely off guard. I had no speech. I had no people to thank. I had nothing. I knew we weren't going to win. Yeah. No, I never thought it happened. So then growing up and... Uh... Yeah, with screenwriting, I got an idea. Because we'd won a lot of the awards that year, coming mm -hmm. up to that. So screenwriting, I thought, we got a good shot. May not win. This is good luck, Grant Screenplays. That one I had. But he said, but growing up, I mean, no, I didn't do the practice of speech in the mirror or anything like that. I just wanted to make a good film. I wanted to try and make a film that I was proud of. 
That's all I ever wanted. But even growing up in, yep. where, where did you grow up again? London, Ontario, Canada. Yeah. And what was the process of, of growing up and getting out of there? Um, I mean, I, maybe it's a good thing to come from a small city, a small town, where there's not much there to, to, uh, to keep you if, if you uh, have aspirations of being an artist or a writer or a filmmaker. It, 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 does, it does motivate you. It's, it's kind of like the advice that I give to people who are coming to Los Angeles or New York or wherever and, and wanting to, to break in as a writer. Or, and a lot of them say, you know, I, I want to get an assistant's job. I want to work for a writer. Okay, that's all right. But maybe if you do that, all you're ever going to turn out to be is a really good assistant to a writer. I almost think it's better to get the worst job in the world, like coming from the worst place. You know, it, it, it motivates you. Uh, you. You work as a furniture mover. You, you don't want to do that for the rest of your life. You better write two, three hours every night uh, to get out of there because there's no other choice. You work as a waiter. You work in a really crappy bar, not even a cool bar. Uh, you work in a crappy bar. So that, 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 that'll push you. Um, so I, I really recommend people get the worst job they possibly can. And people laugh at that and say, no, I'm actually serious. It will push you to succeed. It will push you to do what you want to do. Because if you get a job that feeds a little bit of your creativity, that might be enough. Because we're lazy. We, we, we want to feed our creativity, but that's enough. It's good. And that's my, where you may stick for the rest of your life. Yeah, I used to work in an ad agency, mm -hmm. and it's like so many really yeah. creative people, and they're never, it's such a nice, great yeah, life. Yeah, exactly. And they, it's too, it's, yeah, it's a little, it's that's too close. a bit of it. Yeah. There is creativity there, and it's too close, and so they're never going to, or there's a great possibility they won't get out, unless they make a real effort. Yeah, because it's too cushy. That's really interesting. Not it's too cushy. It feeds a little of the, uh, of what you need. Yeah, you get just enough of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. absolutely. That's actually a really fascinating uh, mm -hmm. perspective on it, for sure. Part of inspiration, or maybe not inspiration, but motivation. Yes. Part of motivation is necessity. Mm -hmm. And I think you're saying that, you know, if you have a fix for your creativity, and that's probably what drives all of us, mm -hmm. is the need to express and the need yeah. to get these things out here. And if you have a, too much of a fix, you... Uh, you might not be driven enough to get to where maybe you want to be or the story right. you want to tell. Another part of that is inspiration. Mm -hmm. um, and we've talked a little bit about you being inspired by mm -hmm. issues and by a, a need to yeah. maybe speak about things in the world. Um, when you have those types of inspirations and there's something you want to talk about and say, yeah. How do you make that not too preachy or not too much yeah. about that? Thing? I think it's very important to, if you know something you want to say or you want something you want to explore or you have a conclusion you want to get to, you better make that really hard to get to that conclusion for that character. You better have that character really flawed in, 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 in a way that, oh, do you need to get to that? Okay, sorry. You, you better have that character be really flawed. You, you better put a lot of obstacles, both you know, personal and emotional, uh, physical, between that person and that person reaching that realization uh, or reaching the opposite realization. I mean, I, I really like writing from the point of view of, of villains uh, or people who I completely disagree with. I mean, Tommy Lee Jones in, 
in the Valley of Ella is a man who, whose, whose point of view in America could not be more different than mine. He really believed in this country, believed in the righteousness of, of our leaders and in the necessity for war and, the, and, and the, the fact that it really makes a man and gives him character. That's what he believes. And so his journey is to the other side, but its journey is by f fighting his own demons and believing that you know, things that, okay, maybe the government wasn't right and maybe I can believe this, but you know, the one thing we've always known about soldiers is that uh, you do not fight for the cause. Uh, you do not go over the hill to, uh, or uh, you know, into that hail of gunfire in order to endure some lofty idea freedom, democracy, you don't do that. You fight for the man beside you. That's what you fight for. And, and you try to get him through, him or her. And so that's, that's sacrosanct. That will never, ever change, except when it does. And when it does, when you're in a war like Iraq, when you have a situation where uh, it, the purpose has become, become so corrupt, you, you go there thinking that you are you know, David fighting Goliath, and then you realize you're Goliath. At that point, everything, the whole fabric breaks down, and, and you can end up killing your best friend, and you can end up thinking they deserved it, and you can end up taking their credit card, buying everybody chicken having a meal and going back after you just chopped them up in pieces. And that's what happened. And so it's, so in order to get to that, this man had to not just think, think okay, it was, it was to get to something that was so personal to him, and his belief was so personal, so that my belief about what I wanted to say about the war, uh, and that one was, well, I sat down, okay, because of, of the way we think, um, and we judge people. I, I can't get Americans, three years into this very popular war, two years into it, whenever I started, I, I can't get them to sympathize uh, for the, the, the Iraqis. I can't. We don't even count those dead. Literally don't even count them. We count our soldiers. We have no idea how many we've killed over there. We have no idea if they're children, if they're women. We don't really care. I mean, we care as good people, but we don't. Yeah, I've heard it's like a million. Or yeah, we don't care. And so we don't care enough to actually force them to, to, to account for the behavior. So I can't tap on that. I can't, so what can I do? So well, maybe I can get them to care about their own sons and daughters and how this is affecting them. How this particular war, which has become, you know, which has lost, I mean, the, all war, some way or other, is, is, you know, there's a justification for it, and that justification is usually bullshit. World War II, the Great War, all these things, the, the good wars, they're, they're not really good. They're, they're often for corporate interests or whatever, for the wrong reasons, therefore, they just are. But sometimes you can hang on to, to a greater cause in order to get yourself through. Now it's all gone. And for this, it, there was nothing there. And these men could see that. And these were men who, you know, who go, they signed up after 9-11, a lot of these guys. They went off, they wanted to be heroes. And that was their motivation. So I didn't want to point the finger like other filmmakers are saying and saying, oh, these guys are villains. No, no, these are heroes. But that's the problem. You're sending heroes into a place, or people who want to be heroes, in a place where there's just 
nothing they can do that's heroic. And, and the fact that they are making decisions because they're being forced to make decisions that will haunt them forever. And I remember doing some research and finding this guy, I met this guy, sweet man, who said, okay, here, Paul, there's a, a thing. If you're driving in convoy and someone or something gets between you and the vehicle in front of you, you're ordered not to stop. You cannot stop. It doesn't matter who it is or what it is, if it's a dog, it doesn't really matter. You have to keep going. Because um, if you stop, you know, as he said, shitheads might pop up with RPGs and kill you all dead. And now, a hero will always sacrifice himself. Always. There's a choice between sacrificing himself and some woman, whatever, he'll, he'll take the bullet. But that's not what you're being asked. Yes, you'll die if the shitheads pop up with RPGs, but so will your buddy beside you. So will the six guys in the back of the Humvee. So will the, the, all the other Humvees that are parked behind you because they can't get by on the road. They're all gone. Right. So here's your choice. You're 17 years old. You just signed up. A kid runs out in front of you, between you and the next one, to get his ball. You have to decide whether to stop or keep going. And you're 17 years old, and you have three seconds. Two, one, now. So I asked myself, okay, I'm in that car. I'm driving that. Forget I'm 17 years old. Right now, what would I do? I didn't have an answer. So the very nature of the war and, and our, of our, the, the rules of our deployment make it so that heroes are guaranteed to walk away thinking they're villains. So what does that do to somebody? So that's, you, you go in there and you find those personal questions and you damn yourself for it. You don't point the finger at the villains. You damn yourself for it. And you, you find those questions that you cannot answer. And then you can maybe get to your point about is war corrupt or is whatever, you know. And, and it's, it's too easy to say, yes, we have bad soldiers and we do these things. No, why? So that's what I try to do. I try to, try to find the specific question that I think of myself as a good person, can't answer. And, and then I can I'll explore the issue through that. It's interesting that convoy thing also happens in Flags of Our Fathers. Yeah, it's, it's the rules of, rules of war. Yeah, which kind of yeah. get in the way. Yeah. That's, that's the story of what, you know, the, the, these men who knew they weren't heroes who suddenly had to be in order <laughs> to raise money for bonds because it was an unpopular war. No one at that time, no one was, was, was digging into their pockets to support it and they needed the money. And so they needed these men to be heroes, these men who raised this flag, who knew they didn't do anything heroic. But they had to pretend those, to be those people. And what does that do, to pretend to be a hero, when you know that the real heroes were over there, unrecognized and dead, and you're just a guy who just put a flag up? And maybe that's another question that you arrive at that you can't quite Yeah, yeah exactly. What's it do? I, could, I didn't know. What's the better choice? So you get in there and you, you just Build you, character you find, yeah, and you find yeah, exactly. You find a really specific, haunting dilemma, something you can't deal with. Yeah. I don't always get to it. So I try. I don't always get to it. Yeah. Uh, this raises the interesting question of source material, which I actually really yeah. was interested in because you know you are a write. First and foremost, would you say that you're a mm -hmm. writer? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and you tend to adapt, or at least the things that I've seen, you know, the FX tool and, and mm -hmm. things like that, sort of um, 
writers that you know you sound like you're out there adapting the latest big novel or yeah. some great you know right. literary figure how do you find i mean is it just so much reading or how it is i mean fx tool i heard being interviewed on npr when oh. i was driving down the street and i pulled over and wrote his name down and found his little book of short stories um, no, you find them from all sorts of places. Um, I don't know. You're always looking for inspiration. You're always looking for that story that'll touch you. And art, how do art. you know when it does? It touches you. It, it, <laughs> it smacks you in the face. And you're like, <laughs> wow. I have to, you know, yes. That's an actual thing. Yeah. Cool. Well, speaking of inspiration, how does this all fit into your work in, in Haiti? About 10 years ago, uh, 8 years ago, I was in... Italy, and I was being interviewed uh, by an Italian journalist, Silvia Buzzetti, and she was asking me questions about In the Valley of Ella, which had just come out. And she ran into questions you know, after a while, and she'd driven quite a way to, to meet me from Rome. And so I asked her where she'd been last, and she said she'd just come back from Haiti. Interesting, I've always been interested in Haiti. And she started to tell me about this man who had been there, an American who'd been there for 20 years, and it just, he sounded like an incredible hero. I mean, he sounded like Indiana Jones, the way he saved people and did things, a doctor, and he'd ford rivers and carry people on his backs, and I mean, amazing story, amazing story, and I just didn't believe her, because I don't believe in heroes. You know, I don't. It's, uh, it's bullshit. Uh, no one's that heroic. So, but the story sounded really remarkable. So uh, after a few months, I, I, couldn't, uh, I couldn't resist. I, I got in a plane and I went to find him. And uh, there was another group of Italians who, who were there and hooked up with them. And I stayed with him as he, uh, he worked in the slums for a week. And the stories were true. And he was doing this work with so little help, so little money. And I, I couldn't walk away from that. And so I uh, started this organization. I took this organization I had called Artists for Peace and Justice, which originally started out as an ad hoc organization, a group of people who were talking about issues of the war and that, and civil rights. And we formed this into a, these have been interested in issues of poverty for some time, and that as a, as a human right, you know, just be able to eat, educate your kids. And so, uh, I came back, I brought that fellow, Father Rick Frechette, down here to Los Angeles. I introduced him to some of my friends. It was just adorable. I had a, a dinner in my backyard, eight of us or something. And I wanted him to get, I figured celebrities are how we get everything done here. It's you know, how you get any notice for anything. So uh, he's having, he's been American, but he's in Haiti for 20 years now. And he's, we're having dinner, and he leans over to me at one point. He says, Paul, the very attractive blonde woman across from me. I said, Charlize Theron? He said, yeah. What does she do? I said, she, she's an actress. Okay, he had no idea. You know, I, the only person he recognized was Barbara Streisand. That Babs, yeah, he knew from 20 years ago, but everybody else, all these other movie stars, had no idea. They were kind of charmed by that. So I, I took a bunch of them down to Haiti with me, and they, uh, you know, Diane Lane, Josh Brolin, some, some wonderful friends. Uh, uh, I went down uh, Madeline Stowe, uh, good people. And um, I tried to raise some money, come back raising it was hard. But uh, he would support some of the schools he had in the slums, things like this. And I ended up just supporting it myself because I couldn't raise the money. Then two years later, after into this organization, doing what we could, taking people down there, 
raising a little here and there. The earthquake hit, and then people knew, people who were friends of mine knew that I knew Haiti, and so when they were going there and wanted to do something good, you know, we hooked up. And uh, you know, people like Sean Penn, who has done such amazing things down there, uh, we flew down together and I, uh, right after the, the quake. And you know, Donna Karen, a lot of people who really wanted to do good work. And so we, uh, I, I came back and I, I knew this. You, know, it, 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 you hate to think of these things at the time. But I said, I, I, can, I can use this. I can raise a lot of money. And so I came back and uh, still had the dirt of the slums on me after a week down there after the quake. And uh, I got my ex-wife to, I called her and said, get every movie star I know in our backyard. Uh, I'm coming back on Saturday. And we did. We had a whole bunch of friends there and people, and we came back, got some people to play, and we raised four and a half million dollars in a couple of hours. Oh. I just asking friends to give me a quarter million dollars each, uh, fifty thousand a year, and movie star after movie star stepped up and said yes. So we, uh, with that initial money, we had like a million and a half in cash, and then the rest in pledges. We started the very first free high school for the kids of the slums. They'd never had one. Uh, if you were, if you're born in the slums. Port-au-Prince, and it's arguably the, the worst slum in the Western Hemisphere. If you're born there and you're lucky enough to go to school, which is maybe half the kids, you can go to grade six and there's nothing else for you. Because after that, school is just too expensive. It's for the rich kids, the middle class kids. So we thought that a crime. And so we started with grade seven, the year of the quake. And now we have this beautiful facility just a few years later, 2,800 children from grade seven through grade 13, starting grade 13 this year. And then uh, we have a, a film school and an audio engineering school. They're both post-secondary facilities at uh, And these kids are graduating. And uh, they're earning 20 times what their parents did. And they're getting real jobs, you know, graduating in film school and coming out and getting a real job. I mean, imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't happen here, but they, they have the need there. And they're shooting commercials, they're shooting industrials, they're shooting small features, shooting documentaries, doing great things. And now, with the help of the We Are the World Foundation, we opened the uh, uh, the, the audio engineering school. We, we have a beautiful studio, recording studio, right on the, on the uh, bluff that we bought this land for them, uh, this film school. Uh, it's called the Artist Institute and the Audio Engineering School. And it's over the bluffs overlooking the, the sea. It's gorgeous. And Arcade Fire helped us uh, with that and to design it. And yeah, so some good musician friends. So that's what we're doing. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, you touched on something there that, that's interesting, which is. You know, maybe they have a better shot in the film industry. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> Paradoxically, yes. Yeah. Now, yeah. so what's that all about? I mean, when I was in here with with Lucchese, he said something really interesting, which is, was you know more or less that the only people who make okay, this is a complete paraphrase, but yeah. more and more uh, wealthy kids are the kids making films in mm. in the U.S. And I think you do see that. I mean, in yeah. Hollywood, you know, it yeah. seems like every son of somebody, daughter of somebody, yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah, somebody and less and less it's because education is so expensive in this country that's and that's a crime it's just a complete crime uh, yeah, only the rich can can afford their dreams it's not true the people can I didn't go to I, I barely made it through high school I didn't go to film school uh, I, I moved down here I had no money I, my dad was working me a hundred dollars a week to help out we had a small construction company he did we were middle class and he was helping me and I worked very hard and, and did it, but 
it's so much easier, goddamn, if you're a rich parent who can send you to UCLA or USC or NYU. Well, it's not just that, because you can go there if you don't have any money. It's just you're going to be in $200,000 worth of debt. That's what I'm Exactly, yeah. yeah. You know? So why? So the, yeah. the thought of that and, and the, the, the friends I have who are digging their way out of that still, and it's a, again, it's, it's the one debt that you, you, can, nev you can never, be, never be forgiven, never, do, never, never be discharged. So it's like, oh, that's... Surf it's penury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So how do we fix? I mean, you know, I guess sometimes when I see... Uh, people helping others, and I see yeah. what's happening in this country. How do we, how do we address that? You know, you, I mean, I've given up on politicians. That's why I go do grassroots stuff, and I just chose to one thing in that. But there's so much of this that makes me angry: the fact that we have no decent educational system, and, and this, we, we we spend our money on war. We have no problem spending trillions and trillions of dollars uh, going over to Iraq and Afghanistan. No problem with that. Don't even account for it. But public education or healthcare? Oh no, we can't do that. No, we can't do something that actually might help our, our citizens. It's sick beyond belief. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any framework for? I mean, if looking at what people are facing today, and it's just this such this hard, uncrackable thing to yeah. get into. You know, it like, isn't. It isn't. You know, you just everyone says this, but it's true. You know, you can if you get an idea and you've got a camera. And you've got some friends, yeah. you know, it's like what you're doing here, and you can you, you, you get some people to volunteer and help out, you can make your movie. It's not easy. You just have to be that much better than anybody else. You have to be ten. I, I, I had a friend who came here, an actress, um, and uh, she was, at the time, years ago, she was like 26, and she was just starting her career, and she was looking around her saying, Paul, all these other actors, they've been doing it since they were 16, 15 years old. I said, yeah, they have been. Uh, so they've got 10 years to jump on you. So you have to work 10 years, and you, have to, you have to do 10 years work in one. You have to work 10 times harder than they are, and you will succeed. And so if you do 10 years work in one, yeah, you got to jump on it. The same thing is if you just have to be, you don't have the same advantage as all the rich kids, that's good. That's who, that's who you are, that's what you got. Now you work, have to work 10 times harder than them. And so, you know, you, you do go do your job, you go work at Denny's, or you go work at Furniture Mover, or whatever you do, and then you come home at night and you work your ass off. There's no excuses. You, you play the cards that are in your hand. But if everyone is working that hard... Everyone won't. Everyone says they will, but they yeah. won't. No, it, that's a rare thing. Everyone will say they will. No, one in a hundred people you give that advice to will actually do it, but one in a thousand. Yeah. They'll all, they'll all say they will, but they won't. It's too hard. It's too hard. There's too many other things you want to do. It's look at the sun, look at the day out there. They, come on, we could just go for the beach today, or we could just hang out and have a beer in the backyard. I, I deserve that, right? Deserve is a tough thing. No. <laughs> well, you might, what you deserve and what you've got are two different things. You better, better know what you really want. You have yeah. to be fierce to succeed. And the person to be fierce with is yourself. Don't be fierce with others. There's no good doing that. Be fierce with yourself. This has been another episode of Gatekeepers brought to you by Collaborator.com, the world's first project collaboration network where filmmakers and content creators come together to fund, produce, market, and screen their projects. Paul Haggis was our guest. We'd like to thank him very much for coming on. It was an honor to interview him. Check out his latest work, a miniseries called Show Me a Hero, which stars Oscar Isaac, that premieres on HBO on August 16th. 
If you like what you listen to here, you can watch the video version on our blog, which is blog.collaborator.com. You can also check out our other original series, Short on Shorts, which features me and three others discussing and analyzing short-form content from across the internet. I'm Isaac Simpson. Until next time, creatives, don't forget to water your plants.